You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, inventors, creators, and leaders in the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Universities across the country are working in all areas of research and development to advance cannabis cultivation, medicine, drug delivery, and technology. But these innovations are collecting dust because the universities are not in the business of business and taking products to market. Today we meet Lance Anderson. He's a partner at the law firm Dickinson Wright, and he's uniquely positioned to play matchmaker to research universities, entrepreneurs, and VCs to help them create partnerships and uncover cannabis innovations they could adopt through partnerships. Lance has a technical background in life sciences, including proprietary plants, genetics, and plant-derived products. He's also served as in-house counsel and lead IP attorney for both a large public research university system and an early-stage venture capital company. Let's meet Lance. Good morning, Lance. <laughs> Good morning. How are you? Good, good. So thank you. I'm excited to talk to you and learn about what you're doing. But so you're based in Texas then? I, I'm in Austin, Texas. Oh, okay. Cool. Wow, that's fun. I've always wanted to go to Austin, actually. Just haven't made it down there. Yeah, um, I'd wait a couple months. We're we're apparently in a heat wave and there's no signs of letting up. Oh, that's right. I did hear you guys are in a heat wave. It's brutal right. down here. Um, so yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I guess if we could just start with um, just tell us about your practice, uh, you know, your law firm and your practice at the law firm and how you are working in the cannabis industry. And that's why I thought it was kind of strange that you're living in Texas and, and yet active in the cannabis, in the right. cannabis yeah. industry. Yeah. So just to, and then we can dive into all the... Um, stuff that you're working on, which I'm excited to hear about. Okay, super, super. So yeah, um, so I work with the uh, law firm Dickinson Wright, which is originally based out of Michigan, and it's slowly over the past couple of decades uh, grown into uh, what we would consider to be a national footprint, uh, as as well as uh, with uh, Canadian office as well. So we're up to 19 offices. Mm. Um, we have about 500 attorneys and it's a, you know, typical fully integrated law firm that handles most practice areas. Uh, I happen to be a part of the firm's uh, intellectual property or IP practice. Mm. And uh, typically, you know, I deal with IP transactions. I do have uh, my patent bar number. So I've done a lot previously with patent prosecution efforts uh, before the USPTO. And I've assisted with you know, various aspects of IP rights ranging from patents over to trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. Uh, but what I've seen my practice do lately is really focus on transactions of, of, of many types. You can do, you know, for IP transactions, most people think of license agreements. Uh, that's certainly a, a core focus for me, but also uh, there are many types of contracts i call working agreements contracts in the day-to-day -day operation of your business that involve ip uh, for example if you want to hire a consultant 
need to make sure you own what that consultant develops. Uh, most people in the copyright world refer to that as work for hire. Um, but, you know, similar language needs to apply for any, any type of intellectual contribution. Um, there's also the buying and selling of companies and assets. Uh, those obviously have a lot of intellectual property ramifications, um, including uh, representations and warranties that the buyer is getting what they're, you know, being told they're buying. Um, so there's a lot that goes into some of that. So I'll support the firm's corporate transactions groups uh, as kind of the IP specialist. Uh, and then with my own clients, I'll serve as a uh, kind of outside general counsel for any issues. And a lot of my clients happen to be innovation driven in some way, shape or form. Uh, and that continues to be more and more important as we continually look to intangible value associated with companies. Um, and then you have this kind of unique background uh, that I kind of came up through, not on purpose. This was all by accident. Pretty much everything uh, with me leading up to this point has been somewhat accidental or seren serendipitous. Um, but I grew up out in West Texas in commercial agriculture. Uh, it was back when West Texas had uh, water resources, aquifer resources uh, widely available. And so we grew high input corn, cotton, soybeans, wheat, uh, you name it. Um, my father was a PhD entomologist and we would be hired by growers to go and, and check their, their fields and their crops ranging from, you know, pest control to weed control, fertility, moisture, crop rotation and strategy, et cetera. So I grew up doing that. And so when I went to school, my focus was on um, entomology as an undergraduate through the school's uh, agricultural college. And then uh, and, and then all of a sudden get a call from my father who's saying, don't come home. This, we're running out of water. These, you know, the, the way farming occurs here is about to change. Go do something else. Yeah. And so as a senior in college, I elected law school just as something else to do. Uh, having no clue and, and really no exposure to that profession. So, so then I go to law school and that was a, a shock to the system. But at that same time, I go back to the ag school and the, my major professor uh, says, why don't you do a joint degree plan? Because at that time, this was in the uh, late nineties, uh, you're seeing the agricultural biotechnology revolution with all of the GMOs and the transgenic varieties coming out and, uh, guess what? All of that was patented and it was the patents behind those technologies that allowed companies like Monsanto to control literally 80% of the global market in soybeans, um, 80 plus percent of the global market in cotton, because they were able to patent early some of the key uh, technologies that were used in bringing in a gene to give oh. weed resistance, et cetera. So, Oh, interesting. It was it was quite interesting. So I did a master's thesis on that. So here comes the intellectual property interest and and the focus. Um, so that it, it was from an agriculture perspective. It was from a biotechnology perspective that I began to understand the importance of intellectual property rights in a business. At that same time, the university was starting its uh, technology commercialization office, which was an outlet of the research uh, department of the institution. And so this gets into some of what we're talking about today. Uh, mm -hmm. 
you know, universities are interested in commercially benefiting from some of their developments. And this little office they had started back in 1999 uh, was um, focused solely on doing that uh, to complement the traditional university roles, which would be research and education, right? Yeah. Uh, the, so, so I went and started clerking there. And ultimately when I graduated law school, um, that being really the only, uh, this was Texas Tech University located in Lubbock, Texas. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, what I would consider to be intellectual property, uh, you know, jobs or positions available in that community, or at least there weren't at that time. So I ended up working for the university in that technology commercialization office and ended up running that office as a, you know, young, young attorney, probably a little earlier than I should have just based on circumstances around me and, and was there for six years. Wow. And so that, that kind of set the stage for a, a continued involvement in the university and academic and research setting. Mm -hmm. um, something that I've continued to do to this day. So, a, you know, to, the big, a big part of my practice today continues to be uh, working with universities around universities uh, and opposite universities on, on deals meant to leverage their innovation. That is so, that is an amazing path that everything, you know, merged together for you that just came together and all the things that you've learned. Yeah. It's a, and, and, also, what we're going to talk about it are these opportunities. I never would have thought of that. So, um, you know, that that this good research or knowledge into commercialization. If if you think about, and I agree, I think it's you know it's kind of two ships passing in the night. On one hand, um, you've got a an, an industry that's exploded, especially especially in regulated states where you've got various regimes encouraging, um, you know, the cultivation and processing and, and sale of cannabis related products. Um, yes, I'm in Texas, but, you know, we're watching our slowly expanding compassionate use program uh, begin to evolve. But, you know, I certainly work with, you know, numerous other states with our numerous other offices in our uh, large cannabis working group on, you know, uh, multi-state operations and various ways, shapes, or form. But at the same time, yes, you've got tremendous know-how and innovation available in institutions, um, right, right. whether they're universities or research institutions, and honestly, federal agencies like the USDA. And they've been putting in for decades tons of resources in the research and development of unique plant traits, uh, you know, techniques to make uh, crop production better. And sure, maybe a lot of that's focused on commercial agriculture, uh, but we've already seen whether it's, you know, pharmaceutical and drug delivery all the way over to traditional agriculture. There's a lot of what I consider to be dual use capability that you can bring to the cannabis industry and make your product offering better, cheaper to make, more efficient, et cetera. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I did an article a couple of years ago about um, uh, agricultural parts of the universities um, doing research in hemp. And I was even suggesting that, you know, yeah, businesses or, or cultivation cultivators should partner with these research uh, 
universities. Uh, for instance, maybe it's because I'm in the Northeast, but uh, Cornell is doing a lot of work in uh, cannabis agriculture and trying to help the farmers, you know, better cultivate and, and things like that. And I know Kentucky, North Carolina University. So I kind of hit up the East Coast of the universities there. So I am sort of familiar with that. I haven't thought about it in a few years, but um, yep. yes. So Thank is you. all the uh, research opportunities that you're seeing mostly plant touching research? Not necessarily. I think what what we're seeing is, I mean, it, it literally could be anything. Um, so we have certain research institutes that are uh, looking at, in, you know, poorly uh, water soluble delivery or bioavailability. So think about, you know, advances in, you know, edible uh, products. And yes. you, know, you always hear the, the kind of some of these holy grail terms about fast acting, um, uh, more efficient delivery you know these are poorly water soluble extracts you know naturally from the plant and so how do you how do you deliver that so that's to me just you know non-plant touching pure drug delivery type stuff mm -hmm. um all the way over to indeed there are a lot especially with the um the 2018 farm bill act kind of allowing folks to dip their toe in the water with regard to you know industrial hemp uh, or compliant hemp operations, you're seeing a lot of research initiatives centered around that. So uh, you had mentioned some schools. I recognize those names. You also have Clemson uh, leading the charge on a, on a hemp industry, uh, uh, you know, strategic initiative that is uh, get, getting some traction. Um, a lot of that is based on kind of the industrial hemp perspective, but you're seeing some of the work that takes place. And it's also interestingly, a lot of the land grant institutions. So this would be um, Mississippi State, Michigan State, uh, Texas A&M, uh, for, for example, are are really diving into plant trait development. Um, so, so you would you would envision these to transition into true, you know, plant touching, flower touching uh, technologies, uh, which which is great to see them, you know, slowly get closer to that line as a as a research institution so that the industry can come take it and run with it from there. And I think that there's a concept in the university world and it's called technology transfer and technology transfer is what it sounds like. They're transferring it to the industry perspective in order for the industry perspective to go commercialize it. Mm -hmm. And the federal government way back in 1980 passed a law that said universities that receive federal funding, right, which most of them do, will uh, have the ability to elect to own whatever intellectual property they develop from that federal funding. So, you know, if any of us that in the what I call the real world go and hire someone and we pay for the work to be done, we expect to own that. Yeah. And historically, the, the federal government kind of was in this gray area of, well, if they give me a grant to go perform research, does that mean the federal government owns this? Right. So, you know, what, 40 plus years ago in 1980, they, the, they made that clear. They said, no, you can elect you, the recipient of our funding to keep title. And so uh -oh, taken, bad move. Yeah, it, well, it, it took forever for it to kind of take hold, but now you can have 
institutions, universities, uh, get federal funding, come up with a, an invention or some intellectual property and own it. Um, now, with that came this public policy that's a little bit in conflict with the traditional university role. Now, what is it? What is that? Well, they want to teach. They want to they want to benefit society by, um, you know, performing research and teaching the world how to, you know, leverage that research. Well, that's a traditional university, what we call the ivory tower mentality, and it's perfectly fine. And their whole basis for existence is is premised on that. You have you have the concept of published articles, competitive grant funding, things that allow a, a faculty member to get tenure. Okay. So these are all really standard kind of university concepts. Well, throw in that commercial success, um, appeal to their greed, and it's not quite the same thing, right? So I could argue that uh, the real benefit to society is entering into the marketplace and affecting consumers today, not just publishing an article so that someone else can. And so you start to blend these, these concepts, commercialization versus, you know, traditional academic, you know, publication uh, or teaching. Before it was controversial. So once that law got passed for 10 or 20 years, you had a lot of resistance in the academic world that we're not going to sell our souls to the private sector and, and do these things. But you then start to realize that someone's going to do it. And you actually may provide a disservice to society if you don't go protect that intellectual property and get it in the hands of capable uh, commercialization efforts, which is, guess what? The private sector enterprise. A university is not built to manufacture and distribute and re you know perform retail sales and advertise. It's not what they're there for. Right. So get in the hands of someone that you know does know how to do that. Oh, so somebody in the private sector would do it for the university? Correct, and that's what that's what this technology transfer concept has evolved to become. Is the universities are now very interested in finding commercial partners to then go and commercialize the development. Right, right. Interesting. So so you're seeing that all happen, okay? Then you're seeing the cannabis industry evolve in various ways. And part of this is the 280E tax-driven perspective as we as attorneys will advise our clients on uh, corporate structuring. How do you as a cannabis operation structure yourself in order to uh, minimize tax liability based on unfair treatment, some might say, while also minimizing the risks and exposure associated with some of the state reporting requirements and accountability standards that vary, obviously, from state to state, but are significant. And so a lot of times these multi-state operators, which are great, you know, examples, I know that's not the only example, but you'll see them from a corporate structuring standpoint, utilize multiple entities. So maybe you have a real estate holding company that owns the real estate. You have a staffing company that manages the HR uh, for the flower touching operation. Uh, and you have another 
maybe holding entity that holds the intellectual property and you do a license down to that flower touching organization. So we counsel clients all the time on various structures around that. Um, so for the first time in a long time, you're seeing an entire industry that's familiar with IP licensing. Uh, universities also want IP licensing. So that means we, the university, have an invention. We want you to go take it to the market. And so we're going to license you that intellectual property. And for years, Pam, I've been telling universities, the reason you're not having success in your commercialization efforts is because most of the rest of the world does not like to license technology and pay a royalty for that. There's a, there's oh. a lot of reasons why, but it's at the end of the day, I say I'm a private sector company and I'm in the market and I go license from that university some technology. So now I have to pay that university a percentage of my sales of that product. The university gets to audit me. Okay. Maybe once a year, maybe I'll limit it. But at the end of the day, I have to have, have to send reports, have to send financial information to ensure I'm paying the right amount of royalty. Also, the university requires that I actively commercialize. So I can't just license it and sit it on the shelf. That's not good for society. So they'll want me to, within two years, have a first sale or, you know, within a certain period of time. So that introduces the concept of perishable intellectual property rights. In other words, they can go away if I default or if I don't right. adhere to my requirements. The perishable nature of an IP license is bad. If I'm a company and I want to go raise money and I'm talking to investors and I'm saying, yes, I've got all these rights from this awesome institution. But if I don't commercialize in two years, they go away. Okay. That perishable concept sometimes makes it hard to raise money because the investor's like, no, I want to guarantee, I need to know you're going to have this and you're not going to screw it up. Um, so you see some kind of weird concepts coming from university perspectives that need to be thought through. But to get to my original point, universities deal with licenses all the time. The cannabis industry deals with licenses all the time. Typically, that's not the case. You have a lot of industries that do not want to deal with licenses uh, for the reasons I walked through, um, with the exception of probably the pharmaceutical in industry. Um, it is a little more accommodating to these license structures um, than, say, the, the high-tech industry. Um, but I would say the cannabis industry is uniquely positioned and even better, uh, a better fit for the university kind of commercialization, you know, styles and structures uh, that we're used to seeing. So what are the opportunities that you see? I know you were starting to lay out. So um, in, in consumption methods, uh, I guess, plant cultivation, breeding probably helping cultivators, all that kind of stuff in the field. Um, are there other that you're... That all of that. Yeah. I Yes. I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut. So you've got, you know, if you focus on the plants themselves, you've got institutions that are developing uh, new genetics that are just mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. um, and from the industrial hemp perspective, they may be genetics where there's zero THC production. Like, they're knocking out the THC. Um, I, I mentioned polyploid species, uh, you know, gives you much more ability to kind of fine tune 
the plant traits that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, there are, uh, so, so there's a ton going on there. Um, say we want to, we want to focus on continuing to develop, you know, stovetop or, or, or stovepipe structures of the plant morphology. Um, you know, there's stuff like that going on and it doesn't have to be genetic engineering. These are traditional breeding programs that, you know, would be, uh, viable technologies to, to consider. Um, but then it goes into things like, um, the processing of the plants. So, you know, and, and little steps within there, right. Improved methods of distillation, improved methods of extraction. Um, there's always advances going on. If, if you go to MJ BizCon, it's like a, a kid in a candy store as far as innovation is concerned everyone's got their latest and greatest you know oh, yeah I have technology i mean it's already there it's it's doing this and so why not tap into these universities which receive millions and millions of dollars in funding and if you properly structure your relationship with them you're right. not out a lot you're not having to pay them millions and millions of dollars to get this technology um so the key is you know, knowing what the university wants and how to structure that relationship. Um, that, sorry for the tangent. Let's get back to the uh, the other opportunities that we have. Um, the the computing and data analytics aspect, I think, becomes very important for uh, uh, cultivation operations uh, as far as being able to track, develop, enhance, monitor, you know, rinse repeat kind of the 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 ultimate um, optimization of your cultivation facility and there are you know vendors within the cannabis industry currently that are offering those types of services but you can see incremental improvements at various universities you know as we speak right um so then uh you've got other things that are going on on the other side of the equation, which is kind of the uh, the big elephant in the room in the cannabis industry, which is we have a dearth of medical research perspectives or data behind this industry. It, mm -hmm. And, you know, the U.S. government has been part of the problem in making it hard to conduct research whether it's clinical trials or clinical research or simple simply preclinical uh you know studies on cannabis and you know we all know there's been one single source of you know from the federal perspective of uh cannabis you know that has been addressed some by giving multiple opportunities for uh producers to become certified as a supplier of research materials. So the researchers are now getting more access to cannabis strains that are more like what we're seeing on the market. Um, but it's still not where we need to be. No, 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 not even close, not yeah. even close. But you're seeing advances. Now, part of the problem, it's not just that the laws are restrictive, they're starting to advance, but then you've got academic institutions and their administrators. Just imagine going into a, a, a university president's office and saying, hey, uh, I want to conduct research on cannabis. And you would have reactions. This is as recent as a year ago. 
where university administration would be like, no, we can't perform that uh, cannabis research because we will lose all federal funding. Right. Where where that come? Some someone was trying to. Someone didn't know what they were talking about, and as a natural reaction, just said no, and and like pulled that out of some you know thin air in, in terms of a response. I. And, I, I heard it in a, a specific situation and I've heard it since in anecdotal scenarios. It's just, that's not true. And certain agencies have made that clear, uh, but it's still kind of this running theme that, oh, it's illegal. So if a university per performs any of these illegal activities, they'll lose their federal funding. And so part of it is on the university side, they need to get comfortable, um, you know, leaning in closer on the opportunities to work with the cannabis industry. And they're doing so. And the Farm Bill Act of 2018, you know, really kind of gave some mission clarity for them. Yeah. I think you'll start to see that continue in terms of uh, working with cannabis, including, you know, adult use recreational opportunities, abilities to get to make those products better. Um, you know, I, I mentioned rapid acting. Um, that's always an easy concept to point to because of the, you know, onset issues you have with edible products. And so, you know, we're seeing people alleging fast acting or at least kind of getting it uh, a little more rapid acting, but yeah, you know, wouldn't it be great, yeah, wouldn't it be great to have a true fast acting formulation? And then, you know, what I consider to be the Holy grail, wouldn't it be great to have something that turns it off? Um, so you would be, say for a lunch hour, you would have a five minute onset. And then at the end of your lunch hour, you can turn it off and go back to work. Mm -hmm. uh, things like that are, are kind of coming out. You look at, you know, with the fentanyl crisis, the Narcan product that is meant to inhibit the effects of an opioid overdose. I mean, there are inhi inhibitor platforms out there that could be exploited for this. Uh, so there's all sorts of things oh, that I know. draw from these various industries that they're currently performing research on and say, could that have application in cannabis? Right. Oh, yes. I mean, just thinking the medical industry alone or the medical applications. Yeah. And that gets, that gets to the ultimate, uh, I guess, take home note for this is that, you know, it's time universities are thirsty for uh, partnering and strategic initiatives. They know this industry needs to be addressed. Uh, they can do so from uh, the clinical perspective you need human subjects, you need access to patient populations. Guess what? All of the health sciences centers associated with these universities have that. Um, mm -hmm. There's ways this can all work, you know, in concert and, and we can design that. It's just going to take some specialization in, in knowing, you know, what causes them to be, you know, to stay up at night from the standpoint of an institution of higher education with these mission statements and and whatnot. So yeah, that, and my shameless plug, I mean, that's the world I work in. And so for me, it's a no brainer. Uh, it will take some, some culturing of both sides to begin to understand the opportunities. But once, once that is kind of uh, socialized and everyone's on the same page, uh, these deals can be put together and they will look a lot like the, the licenses, the JV styles that we see with our current multi-state operators in the cannabis industry. It would right. look a lot like that. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. No, I mean, absolutely. I, um, I don't even think it's a shameless plug, but we need 
that's why you get those knee-jerk reactions from universities saying we can't touch the plant because right. everyone's so afraid and no one wants to make that decision like, okay, well, what if we're going to be made an example of, you know, no one wants to be the one who, who set that up. So, you know, it's going to take legal people, you know, to, to assure them to, you know, give them comfort that we can move forward this and, and broker the deal. Um, and I think, and, and now that we're talking, it's just what a, what an amazing opportunity to move this industry forward. So I guess the question would, I guess, and wrapping up, I guess uh, two questions I think is um, what would it take to, I guess you're to structure an agreement with a university just, and who, who do you think is, the, who do you think are the prime candidates that you would want to see come in and do this? Are they independent? VCs? Are they companies? I guess there's probably a little bit for everyone, different situations, but how do you see the best partnership happening that could go smoothly between all the pieces? Right. I think, you're, okay, we all are seeing, let's put on our cannabis hat right now. We're, we are seeing, you know, kind of this evolution of an industry and whether it's uh, the the kind of M&A environment, the roll-ups, there are um, there are investment perspectives, I think, that should be thinking, you know, they're playing chess. They're years down the road, and, and they're trying to predict where this is going to go. Uh, that group of perspectives should be thinking about how to, how to align with universities. Now, we put on the university hat. They're asking the same question. How do we, you know, with this lens going out five, 10 years, envision an industry like the cannabis industry evolving and how can we be a part of it? And so what you see with universities are corporate strategic initiatives, industry clusters, ways they can say, we will assemble the expertise from the scientific perspective. We will let you, the industry perspective, guide us and how we focus our research so that if we're going to go get that NIH grant next year, why don't we put in some of these projects that you're interested in said investment perspective? So I think that your institutional investment perspectives are certainly relevant to this conversation. I think your large multi-state operations are certainly relevant to this conversation. I think your smaller operations that are looking to differentiate themselves truly not by mm -hmm. saying the best quality, we've all seen it, right? We, you know, our, you know, we have the most technical capability. We have the best quality, you know, all of these soft terms that are used to differentiate one product from the next. Well, let's go out and really make a difference in terms of um, a more efficient, controlled delivery, faster delivery, um, processing that's done that's, uh, maybe up to medical rate standards, um, things where you could do a GMP in a box so it can roll into any warehouse that's not certified, but have have the uh, necessary uh, you know, standards that people like to see so that they know they're buying quality and, and assurance. So you see all of that out there. I, you know, I sit up at night and I'm like, it's just right here. We can bring all this together and get this going. You know, I think also the other thing is we have to get the message to our lawmakers that, you know, this is an, this is, we're sitting on the next industrial revolution. I mean, there's so much innovation, bring manufacturing back to the United States. We're building that special equipment 
that is is particular to the cannabis industry. We're developing this equipment to build the cannabis industry. It's an industrial revolution, and I know I'm. You're, I'm I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I I totally get what you're. It's, I'm yeah. absolutely see the whole thing. It's, so it's there. I guess yeah, it's there. So I guess then what is the what, what any other problems that we could um, talk about? I guess how about how are the VCs handling it? I you know there's a lot of people standing back in the industry because they don't want to invest, and that's one of our problems until the laws move forward. How, right. What kind of interest are you seeing, or or what do you what what can what do, what do you think needs to happen to get this to break this logjam, and how are the VCs reacting to this, or are they even aware of this? I think yeah, they are, and I think there's um, there's kind of this world of haves and haves not have nots, you know, within the cannabis industry, uh, where the haves are dealing with relationships that are giving them guidance in the ultimate evolution of this industry. And so they're beginning to position while everyone else is, you know, going about their day um, to, you know, get ready for the next big thing. Um, you've seen uh, publications and uh, I guess announcements on certain uh, cannabinoid production platforms like yeast cells um, and things like that. I, my opinion is that that's we 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 could go into plant cell fermentation by itself. Uh, yes, synth synthetic manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah, and guess what? You have some of the world's most successful cancer drugs doing exactly that right now. All you need to do is just go look. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think you're getting to. What, what I'm seeing is there are groups that are thinking about this stuff. There are groups that are working with universities. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think you're starting to see some of these initiatives being discussed. Uh, I'm, I've participated in several in the last uh, couple of years, and they range from, you know, kind of more of a local perspective for a community that has a, a university present to the more, uh, global impact strategic initiatives that's that are interested in bringing in industry cluster perspectives um, all the way to uh, more social innovation driven to really assist with economic development uh, mm -hmm. around a, a certain community that wants to leverage the uh, the institution don't forget you have your federal agencies themselves which are great resources for collaboration uh, you know, that need to be leveraged as well. Um, really? Federal agencies in the can? I mean, for cannabis? Yeah, NIH, NIH has its own program that's getting kicked off for uh, cannabis research. And, and believe me, they all understand and recognize that the fact we don't have enough clinical data available is a major hindrance to the advance of this industry. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are opportunities beginning to develop where these agencies will participate and or fund uh, the work in cannabis. From the university standpoint, um, the de-risk, the de-risking of working in the cannabis industry uh, is continuing. And so I've, I've spoken at hmm. kind of the trade organizations uh, that oversee these technology transfer uh, concepts for their institutions and i've told them you're not going to lose your funding don't don't let these kind of 
urban myths kind of come in and and throw you off. If you've got initiatives, let's develop them. And if you want to talk to folks in the industry, let me know. We uh, you know yeah. we can start to match make and and find out who who's interested in doing what. Uh, so it's out there. It's starting to happen. It may not be widely publicized, and that's the other thing. Universities are inherently skeptical. They're always uh, worried about being taken advantage of. Uh, once this whole concept of technology transfer came on, there's a lot of speculators coming in uh, wanting to see if they can get uh, an early look or a free look at technologies. And, you know, if the uh -huh. term speculator resonates with you, I mean, the cannabis industry is likewise full of speculators. And so, you know, we've got to make sure and, and you know, focus on the quality aspects of any of these opportunities um, that universities aren't going to want to work with startups and just throw everything in there and let that startup say, Hey, yes, we're, we're involved with such and such university. They've blessed this product. Right. Right. So right. There's risks associated with how you work, you know, with each other. And that's part of my job. Our job as, as attorneys is to structure those in a manner that let, lets everyone kind of, slowly advance into the relationship, get satisfied with what milestones they want to be satisfied with, at which point this thing begins to take shape. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to end it is, is, you know, um, you are a great resource for trying to put this together and, and, and you, you, you are in it and you see it and, um, I, I think it's so exciting, actually. I, I really love it. It's really great. So um, I, I think we've covered everything, right? Is there anything else that you think you want to add to this? I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's the that's the great introduction into the concept. And I think as folks begin to, you know, hear this and, and think about their own contacts and relationships, you know, this will likely resonate and it will um you know, hopefully get, get them thinking about opportunities that uh, they can go pursue. And yes, yeah, yeah. it's, it's something I've thought about for years as I've continued to watch the two different uh, areas that I practice in often. Um, right. But I think now with, especially with some of the relaxation of federal perspectives with regard to R&D, you're going to start to see this come together. And, you know, I'd love to be, be here when it does. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.